Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this beautiful Sunday morning in which we can come and worship you, praise you in song, and worship you in the reading of your word, and worship you in the preaching of your word. Worship you in as we fellowship with one another. We just ask now that you will open our hearts and minds to you, to your word. Through Jesus, amen. Okay, I'm going to be reading from Mark 7, verses 17 through 30. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement... You may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Hopefully you've got a Bible uh, with you or an iPad with you or something. Go ahead and turn there if you're not already to Mark chapter 7. That's where we're going to be today. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the chair in front of you. You can grab one of those and it'll be much easier uh, to follow along. Do you notice our new screen up here? You, you noticed that at one point, yeah, Jake uh, installed that this week and we got the projector connected and getting things uh, kind of dialed in up here audio-wise and video-wise, so excited, uh, excited about that. 
Anybody not notice the new screen? <laughs> a couple of people, all right. We, we have a new, new uh, bright screen here, and we're uh, thankful to, to have that. All right, so transitioning. We measure what we value. There's something that's important, something we want to, uh, some, something that we value. We we keep a record of it. We track it. We we have a metric of that thing that we value. I'll give you an example here. Uh, every nine weeks or so, students bring home uh, something, or it shows up in the mail, a report card, because schools value learning. And so they have a metric system, they have a system, a metric to evaluate how that learning is going. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was growing up, I, had a, I have a lot of bad memories of days when those report cards uh, hit home. Anybody with me out there? Anybody have some of those memories like, oh no, uh, this thing is coming home and I have not... Uh, performed, uh, have not learned what I should have, and mom now knows, and there's some consequences that come from that. Uh, We measure what we value. What I want to do today as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark is I want us to think about using the Gospel of Mark as as a metric, if you will, as a basis for what does a godly life look like? What does a godly person look like according to the gospel of Mark? This is kind of the question of the framework I I want to have over this next section of scripture that we're going to be looking at. And really, all of Mark up until this point, I want us to have that question. What metric would we use? What does it look like to be a godly person? And I want to suggest that in Mark's gospel, we have a couple different perspectives that are coming our way about what a godly person looks like. And one of those perspectives is the, perspectives, the perspective of the Pharisees, the scribes, the Bible guys, if you will, the pastors, the leaders from the first century. They're one of the main characters in the book of Mark, and they have a perspective about what it means to be godly. Now, if you've been here with us over uh, recent weeks, you know that their perspective is, uh, is, is right on and exactly positive, Right? No, right? Are you with me? Are you listening? Are you just like sitting here today? We, we know that their perspective and the metrics that they have are off. Let's just take a look at a reminder of what a few of them are. If you're going to be godly, a metric for godliness is that you don't hang out with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with sinners. You avoid eating meals with sinners. This would be one of their metrics, that you avoid contamination. This is what was important to them. This is a metric they would use. Uh, Avoiding Sabbath fast food. For those of you that forget, forgot, and back in chapter 2, the disciples are traveling through a grain field on the Sabbath day. And they are incredibly hungry. We find them really busy all throughout Mark's gospel and not a lot of time to eat. And they are incredibly hungry. And they're doing what I call in our family direct injection. They're walking through the grain field. They are taking the grain and they are directly putting it straight into their mouths. That is how hungry they are. But they're doing this on the Sabbath. And this isn't supposed to be done on the Sabbath, this direct sort of ejection, direct injection. This is, this is work. 
Now, I have to just tell you where we get this phrase, direct injection, from, if you'll, uh, that, that we have in, in, in our home. One of the, one of the, well, I get it from a variety of places, but one of the places I get it from is uh, collecting uh, uh, blackberries. How many of you love blackberries? It's not the season. We've got blackberries. We love collecting these things. And my wife and my daughter, they are really good. They've got a bowl or two, and they collect those blackberries, and they fill the bowl. But when I go, I kind of go in a different model, the direct injection model. I mean, those things are just so awesome. I just, I just want to just directly put them in my mouth and eat them. And that's what the disciples are doing. So that, I just want to tell you about direct injection, just so you know that that's a phrase that our, our family has. This is what the disciples are doing, and the Pharisees are concerned that they are violating the Sabbath, that they're working. They're just hungry. So another uh, metric that the Pharisees would have would be to avoid healing on the Sabbath. Only if a life is threatened can you heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus has to correct that. So again, they're, they're worried of, about contamination. They're worried about breaking these laws and traditions that they have gone way beyond Scripture with having, we, uh, we saw last week, they are concerned with having ceremonial uncleanness not just by eating with people, but by not properly washing your dishes, your hands, and so forth before you eat. So I'm suggesting there are two perspectives if we want to think through Mark's gospel about what a godly person looks like. And one of those perspectives is the perspective of the Pharisees and of the scribes and of the, the leaders, of the, the people of God, as you were, those who knew the word of God the most. I want to suggest, and you know this already, that we have a very different perspective coming from Jesus. Jesus is not worried about individuals being contaminated, but uh, associating with, with prostitutes or with tax collectors. He's worried about redeeming those folks. He's worried about loving them. And so we see through him this value of faith. We see him valuing the faith of tax collectors and of sinners who recognize, who recognize him as someone that, that will help them. And they look for him and they long for him and he blesses them, he heals them, he casts demons out. And so we see him rewarding those. We see his metric being based in faith in him. Are you with me? All right. So we're, we're talking about this second perspective today. And what a godly person genuinely looks like, according to Mark's gospel, through Jesus' perspective. He also values, uh, just a couple other examples before we get into today's passage, he values the faith of this woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. She's going to do whatever it takes to get to him. She touches him and she's healed. We see him valuing that faith. It doesn't matter that she has been ceremonially unclean. This is a misunderstood concept we have already learned. And so again, Jesus is valuing her faith. Jesus is valuing the faith of the friends of the paralytic who will do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus and they lower him through the roof. He values the faith of the friends. He values the faith of the paralytic. He not only heals him, but his sins are forgiven. So today we're going to encounter a woman. We don't know her name. She is described as the Syrophoenician woman. And I want to suggest, I want to say that I, uh, I want us to observe six different metrics in this passage about what a godly 
person, specifically here, what a godly woman looks like, all this applies to men as well, but what a godly woman looks like. So before we get into our new passage for today, let's just back up a little bit and kind of set the stage. Look with me at chapter 7 and verse 18 and following. So the, the translation I have, Jesus is, is engaging with the disciples, and he says to them in verse 18, are you so dull? Uh, they don't get it. The disciples for us are not an example at this point of what a godly person looks like. Their hearts are hard. They are dull. They don't get what he has just been teaching about what actually makes someone clean. What makes you clean, what makes you holy is not washing your hands. That's what he's just taught. It's not what you eat or what you don't eat. Continuing on in verse 18, he says, Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, we hit this last week, those of you that were here, but this is an amazing and radical sentence. Jesus is declaring all foods clean. Jesus is saying that the laws in the Old Testament, in the Word of God, in Scripture, not the traditions of men, but the Word of God when it comes to dietary regulations is no longer binding. This is a huge statement that he makes and has massive implications. And it's no accident where he goes right after he makes this statement. You see, in Jesus' day, if you wanted to be godly, the way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees taught, you had to not only do all of these things that were up here on the screen, but you needed to avoid certain foods. You needed to become Jewish, as it were. But we're going to see in just a moment, as we go through this passage, that this is not the way things are going to continue. Jesus is going to have a different metric. So let's get into our passage for today, beginning now. Uh, let's jump over to verse 24. So he's, he's finished this teaching about what is clean and what is unclean. And now verse 24 says, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre, or some of the manuscripts have Tyre and Sidon. So he left that place. Jesus was in this area, Gennesaret. This is where the previous uh, episode in, in Mark's gospel took place in, in this fertile region. He leaves that region And he goes uh, to the area of Tyre and Sidon. It's about 40 miles. It is a long journey. And Jesus has yet to move outside of the boundaries of Israel. And really, in all of the Gospels, this is what what happens right here. This is the only time he really moves outside the boundaries of ancient Israel. He's up in this area of Tyre and Sidon on the Sea of Galilee. One commentator writes this. He says, this was apparently Jesus' only excursion beyond the ancient borders of Israel. So he has just made, in last week's passage, this incredible statement that the the dietary laws are no longer binding of the word of God, and then he leaves Israel and goes to this place that Jewish rabbis would not normally go, this area of Tyre and Sidon. This is one of Israel's most bitter enemies. Come back to the text here, verse 24. It says, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, and yet he could not keep his presence secret. We see once again here this massive theme that's just driven home week after week, chapter after chapter in Mark's gospel, that Jesus is overwhelmed with people. 
He's traveled this great distance. We still don't exactly know why. So the reader would be thinking here, why in the world would he travel this great distance and go to this pagan land with these enemies of Israel? He, he, we're told that he, he's going to enter this house and he, he doesn't want anyone to know it. He wants, uh, he wants to be teaching his disciples is what we're going to see. He wants a place of refuge here. He wants a place to teach. But he also knows all things, and he knows what is about to happen, and it is an amazing thing what's about to happen. So, so here's where, where it gets dramatic, and this is a controversial passage, uh, in, in particularly in one of the words that Jesus uses, and we'll get to that in a minute, but let's, let's get to kind of the drama here, verse 25. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. So he's traveling to this area of enemies. He's wanting to be alone and to have time with his disciples to teach them. And there is a woman there whose daughter is possessed by this evil spirit, and she is going to go to whatever lengths she needs to to be with Jesus, this Jewish rabbi. She is going to get to him so that her daughter can be healed. Notice it says, as soon as she heard about him, uh, she, 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 she goes because of this motivation of her daughter. Her little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit. And she comes and she falls at his feet. So the first metric, I've got six of these that I, out of this paragraph, this new section of scripture today, is, is that a godly woman or man listens enthusiastically to the good news about Jesus. She has heard about him. The news has traveled from Israel to this area of the enemies of Israel. And she has recognized the good news, the gospel, if you will, as far as the gospel she can understand. Jesus has yet to die and be raised. But she knows there is something extraordinary about this man. And I am going to go to him. I am going to get him. I am going to follow him. I'm going to be in his presence. This is one of the metrics that we, women and men, young and old, need to look at in our own lives when we ask ourselves about godliness. As we think about, am I a godly person? I want to be a godly person, which happens only by his grace. Am I someone that, that, that would be enthusiastic about pursuing and following Jesus if I lived 2,000 years ago? And am I that kind of person today? Am I, am I, am I receptive to this news about him and am I longing to be with him? It's a privilege as a pastor to be able to see this in, in people's lives. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we had Rhea baptized here. And I, I saw that in her, people who are new in the faith. You remember what it was like if, you have, if your, your affections and your, your, your heart and your emotions for the Lord have somewhat been subdued recently. Do you remember seasons in the past where you just couldn't get enough of Jesus? Anybody remember times like that? We want those times now. This is one of the things that we see in this passage. This woman, this Syrophoenician woman we're about to hear is, is so enthusiastic about him. Back to, back to our text here, uh, verse 25. So she's, as soon as she's heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and she falls at his feet. She falls at his feet. She she, she has this, this worship for him. 
She has this concern for him. She has this heart for him. But what is driving all of this, what is driving her motivation is, is two things. Number one, what she's heard about Jesus, but also her care for her family, for her daughter. And so this is kind of the set, second metric that I have for us today, that a, a godly woman or a godly man cares for family, cares for them, loves them, is devoted to them, is passionate about them. We'll go to whatever extents we need to, to to love them and to serve them. This is one of the things that we should be asking ourselves this morning, I believe, in light of this text. What am I willing to do to show love and to care for for my children or my family members at at large, for that that matter? I came across uh, an article some some weeks ago in the Washington Post about a woman named Barbara Altman. have a photo of her here on the right. This is her son that she is caring for here. Uh, Barbara is an 80-year-old woman. And she wrote this article that was in the Washington Post. And as I, uh, the, the article just, just, you know, occasionally you read something and it just, just strikes you, it just stays with you. And as I was reading this passage this week, the Lord brought her back to my mind. Because sometimes what we're going to see here, the passage has already been read, this woman's child, the Syrophoenician's woman's child, is going to be healed. But sometimes our children are not healed. Sometimes we live with difficulty. And this is the case with, with this woman. And I just want to read to you a little bit of her story. Okay, this article was in the Washington Post just a few months ago. She, she, she writes this. She, uh, she says, as a woman who has mothered uh, a child who has had special needs and uh, uh, illness for the past 53 years, let me share some of the difficulties as well as the joys of parenting a child with microcephaly. This is what her son has. She, she writes, in my son's case, microcephaly was caused by unknown factors in the first trimester of pregnancy. Andy cannot speak. And although we have tried many times, he cannot use any communication devices. He did not walk until he was 10. He has never learned to read or write or to do any math. He has never held a job, and he needs 24-hour supervision to keep him safe. He knows his name, and he recognizes his home, siblings, parents, friends, staff members at his group home and his day program. He is cooperative with dressing and bathing, feeds himself, and he's toilet trained. He is an extremely happy person, and he makes lots of happy noises, even laughing out loud infectiously at times. kind of guy I'd like to be around. Uh, are, are you around people that have that kind of infectious laughter? And you just just want to be with people like that. He likes music, toys that make noise, therapeutic riding, and going anywhere in a car. He definitely likes to hold hands and is a great hugger. He never has an angry day. And his pleasant personality can light up a room. While he doesn't make the usual contributions to society through employment, marriage, or volunteering, I consider his presence a gift. That sentence just hit me. She is considering... Her son, whom she's still caring for at age 53, his presence a gift. At his birth in 1963, the expectations for children such as Andy were very different from today. Those with intellectual and development disabilities were warehoused in institutions, usually in rural areas, out of sight and out of mind. This article goes on. The doctor, when when he was uh, young, recommended that he immediately be placed in one of these places. And she and her husband rejected this plan completely, which was not characteristic in that time. 
She goes on, because I was a stay-at-home mom, I took care of the kids as usual. But things became harder the longer Andy didn't walk. Although he was small at age 10, he weighed only 55 pounds. He was about three and a half feet tall. It was hard to pick him up, and he was too big for a stroller. He became good at scooting on his bottom from room to room. The most difficult part was getting him upstairs to go to bed. He was not toilet trained then, still in diapers, before disposable diapers. Finally, in 1989, at age 26, Andy was offered a group home placement. And then she talks about how up, up until age 26, she did not find a place where she would see him as being at home. And so she was caring for him constantly until that point. So now she writes, and just, I'm just about done reading this here. Since then, he has lived close by in the Rockville area. This is in Maryland, just outside of D.C., currently with four other men of varying abilities. He has lived with one of his roommates for the full 27 years. He's been in the group home. We still pick him up almost every weekend. But in deference to our age, I am 80. My husband is 83. Now he only comes home Saturday and goes back to his group home on Sunday. As we think of Mark's gospel and we think of what a godly person looks like, there are clues about what a godly person is not through the Pharisees, through the scribes, and there are clues from Jesus about what a godly person is. And one of the things that a godly person is is someone that loves and cares for their family. And sometimes the Lord brings healing when our family members are hurting and suffering, and sometimes the Lord brings strength to help us to endure through caring that is difficult but ends up being perceived as a gift from God. So this woman, she's listening. This Syrophoenician woman is listening, and she's heard about this Jewish rabbi from this foreign land who is coming, and I am going to find him. She's enthusiastic about the person of Jesus, and she is someone that cares for her family, and she's going to do whatever it takes. And it says in verse 25 that she falls at his fate, at his feet. She recognizes her place before the Lord. He is mighty. He is awesome. He is infinite. I am not, and she falls at his feet. This is what we are to be doing today as well, whether we're doing it physically or whether we're doing it in our souls, in our spirits as we're driving, or whether we lay down on the ground and recognize how mighty and glorious and powerful and awesome Jesus is. This foreigner has understood that, how to respond to him. The Pharisees have not. We fall at Jesus' feet. This is part of our our discipline, if you will, as we gather each week, as all of the things that go on in Sunday mornings, we gather in many ways to fall at Jesus' feet and to sing praises to him. She's enthusiastic. She cares for her family. She recognizes her place before the Lord as she falls at his feet. Look at verse 26. It says, The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. So we have an emphasis here in this passage. I don't know if you've seen it yet or not, but in verse 25, she's described as a woman. She's described as a woman again in verse 26. And now we are told about her. She uh, was a Greek, not meaning that she's from the country of Greece, but that she speaks Greek and that she is Greek culturally. She is born in Syria, Syria, easy for me to say, Syrian Phoenicia. This is where she's from. These are cues from Mark letting us know how opposite this woman is from uh, a Jewish rabbi. 
uh, in Matthew chapter 15, his account of this passage, this event is described in Matthew's gospel as well. It says this, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him. So the Syrophoenicians are descendants of the Canaanites. Now, if you remember, the Canaanites were supposed to be wiped out. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, this is the word. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and the Lord your God, uh, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So this woman is a descendant of a people who were instructed to be completely wiped out. She has survived. They are bitter enemies of the nation of Israel. Jesus ends up going to their land. Again, the reader who's informed of the first century should be constantly thinking, why in the world would Jesus go up there? One of the answers to why Jesus would go up there was to have this engagement with this woman so that we would understand what it means to be godly. So that we would understand what Jesus cares about and what he doesn't care about. So she is from this, uh, the, the, the cultural enemies. There is massive racism, if you will, between the Jews and these people. This woman is not hindered by this cultural difference or by this racism. She's not hindered by culture, by ethnicity, by language, nor by gender. A Jewish man, especially a Jewish rabbi, would not talk to a woman in general because of, because of, of, of just the prejudiceness that was, that was prevalent in that culture. Jesus is not following the prejudices of his culture. He is not following the traditions of his culture. So this woman is not hindered by anything. Now, as, as I talk about this, I, I want to, I mean, my heart's just, I mean, we have this history the church does, and, and actually men do in general, of oppressing women. Yes? Do, do we have that? I mean, women couldn't vote until 1920 in our country. Women have, have been oppressed in many different ways. And so what is the solution to that? Well, some in our world would say the solution to the oppression that has happened for centuries and for thousands of years of women, the solution is to hate men and become a feminist. Does that sound like a good solution? And, and, and those feminists use the Bible and they use Jesus in particular and the church, and, and the church has, has committed all kinds of sins, including the oppression of women, so... I, I don't want to necessarily defend any of that. I don't want to defend any of that. But what I want to highlight is that the scriptures and Jesus himself is going, I believe, to this great distant land because of this encounter that is about to happen. And he is engaging with this woman. Now, people don't even like the way that, that he engages. But we are right now we're looking from the angle of her that she isn't hindered by this cultural racism her gender, her language, she's not hindered by, by any of it. You know, a blessing that Jews uh, will say upon themselves, a, a prayer that they'll say from oral tradition from the Mishnah is this, blessed are you, God, our Lord, King of the universe, who has not made, uh, blessed are you, King of the universe, who has not made me a non-Jew. Blessing God because I'm not a Gentile. 
I'm blessing God because I am not a woman. I am blessing God because I am not a servant or a slave. This is part of Jewish tradition and part of the culture going all the way back to that day that Orthodox Jews continue, some of them, to say this blessing or this prayer today. This is highlighting the division between Jew and Gentile, between male and female, this thing that was perpetuated. So Jesus travels this long distance, and here's this engagement with this woman. And she is begging Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. So now let's look at this response, and this is, this is controversial. Verse 27. Here's Jesus' response to her request. She's at his feet. She has come in the house. She has crossed all kinds of barriers. He's seeking privacy. Here's what Jesus says. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. All right. So shall we stand for benediction here now after this uh, verse? What is Jesus saying here? So the first thing, Jesus is using an experience from everyday life here to communicate something. And that experience is children eating bread and dogs eating the food that, that uh, the dogs eating, it would be wrong to toss food that was precious food, that there was so much more precious in the first century than in our affluent culture today. It is just wrong to take that food and to toss it to the dogs. This is just a, just, that, that's just common sense from everyday life experience. This is what Jesus is saying. But of course, this is a metaphor for something else. So we have to ask ourselves, what is he, who are the children here? And, and wh- who, what is the children's bread? What are the dogs? So, so the way this is sometimes understood is that the children uh, refer to the Jews or the Jewish nation in general. But I don't think that is the case. What he is referring to here are his actual disciples The context here, these few verses, this paragraph, this section, verses 24 through 30, are about Jesus not wanting to be interrupted, to be in this place, to teach his disciples. And so what Jesus is saying when he says, let the children eat all they want, what I believe he means there is, let my disciples have their time with me. This is what he's saying. I have traveled, in part, Outside of this land, this is the way this communication is going down with here. I've traveled in part in order for these men to have time with me alone. That's why I'm trying to avoid the crowds. That's why I'm in this house. That's why I've traveled so far from Israel. So let them eat all they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread, that is the teaching of Jesus, the time and energy that Jesus expends with the 12. It is not right to take that and to toss it to the dogs. And who are dogs representing here? Dogs are representing not Gentiles in general, but I think it is referring to actually her daughter and Gentile children in general. There is a higher priority, and this is why I'm here, and this is going to happen. Now, Jesus uses this word dogs, which is always really troubled me. I have never studied this passage that seriously until this week. So let me just make a couple comments about uh, the the word dogs here. So this word for dogs, there are two words in Greek for dogs, and this is the word for a house dog or a lap dog in contrast to a dog of the street or a dog of the farm. So we don't have really a distinction in our language of these two different things, but Jesus is is referring here to dogs that would be in the home. 
In other words, if he was trying to slam Gentiles and use a pejorative term, he wouldn't have used this word. He's just simply using everyday language and experience of life. That it would be wrong to give this precious bread to these uh, house dogs or lap dogs. Are you with me? You guys still, still tracking with me today? I know I'm, I'm kind of going along here. So here we go. So this is so the way um, it's translated in the New King James Version is perhaps best, where it says it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs, distinguishing. So Jesus is not engaging in ra- using racist language here. So this woman is not hindered by her culture, by her ethnicity, by her language. Jesus is is uh, engaging her, explaining to her through this metaphor what is going on. And look at her response. It is, it is just beautiful. Verse 28. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So she begins agreeing with Jesus. Yes, that's right. We shouldn't take precious bread and throw it to, throw it to our, our pet dogs. Of course not. Yes, Lord. In other words, she is saying, I understand that you are here to minister and to teach to the 12, and that needs to happen. Yes, Lord. This is the first time anyone uses the term Lord in Mark's gospel to refer to Jesus. The disciples haven't used it, but this Gentile, Syrophoenician, Canaanite woman is using it as she falls at Jesus' feet and says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What this woman is saying is those dogs still get food because children are messy eaters. That's the story level. But the astounding level here, the astounding level of her response, I hope you can get excited about this as I am. I can tell not all of you are. The astounding thing here is every one of Jesus' miracles have involved him traveling distances to lay hands and heal or to cast demons out. All of them that have happened in Mark's gospel. The paralytic, they've got to work to get him to Jesus. The synagogue ruler whose daughter is also ill, Jesus travels this distance to go to the house to pray for her. The woman who's hemorrhaging, she has to travel to Jesus. Jesus has been healing and casting out demons in the way that is culturally expected in Israel that involves laying on hands, it involves touching, it involves traveling. But this Syrophoenician woman understands that Jesus doesn't need to travel to heal her daughter. This isn't a correction of Jesus, but this is the closest thing to a correction of Jesus in the New Testament. And it is by a Syrophoenician, Canaanite, pagan woman. She is saying, You can do the ministry with your men that you came here to do, your Jewish men. And you can heal my daughter. Verse 29. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home. She found her child lying on the bed. And the demon This, if I can use the phrase, is biblical feminism right here. This is a woman who is confident and yet who is submissive and recognizes Jesus as Lord and God 
and, and, and Messiah. She may not fully understand who she is, but she, she recognizes him thus far in Mark's gospel more than anyone else. Certainly more than any of the disciples. So she is simultaneously respectful to Jesus and she's confident. She has a robust mind. She engages Jesus not like the Pharisees, not like the scribes. And Jesus rewards her. And Jesus blesses her by healing her daughter. So metric number six is that a godly woman is blessed by the Lord's responses to prayer. The reason I, I told this, read the story from this Washington Post story is because not all of our situations end like this, where we go home and our child is healed, or whatever our burden is that we're bringing to Jesus, that he relieves it. In fact, in my experience, he often doesn't relieve it. Sometimes he does. But sometimes he gives us the strength to be a mom for 53 years and recognize that as a gift. We have seen in this passage what it looks like to be godly. And it's taken not the disciples, not the Bible guys, not the religious leaders, not the people that know their Hebrew Bibles the best. It's taken this pagan, Canaanite, Syrophoenician woman to show us. Let's bow our heads and ask God to help us to be godly. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. That we don't have to become a particular ethnicity or pretend to be or to avoid certain foods to be clean, to be holy. That we don't need to invent traditions and, and, and stack them up so that we don't even get close to disobeying the word of God. That's not the pathway to godliness. Lord, we pray that you would make us people of, of great faith in Jesus, like this woman, like the other examples we've seen in Mark's gospel. We pray that you would make us people who, by your grace and by your empowering work of the Holy Spirit, will take care of family members and people in need. That by your grace, we would be the kind of people, even though we've been walking with you a long time, that we would be the kind of people that fall on our faces and worship you. And we pray, God, especially for our Christian women, Lord, that they would be worshipful and respectful, but confident and articulate and able to engage as this Syrophoenician woman was. Lord, we're thankful for your word today. In Jesus' name.